Have you ever wondered how the separate threads of your life fit in to one big picture? How the individual moments of challenge and triumph connect to one another to form the great meaning of your life? I am Anna Mullins, your Life Story Editor, and I'm convinced that making sense of our deepest pain can help us understand our deepest purpose. In my speaker training program and on this podcast, I help people weave together those confusing, often shameful pieces of their past, revealing the life-changing lessons that create their profound new story. Welcome to Unapologetic Stories, where secrets are out and the truth is in. Welcome back, storytellers. I have a guest today that I have been wanting to interview for a very long time. And last season, we had a little bit of Jordan, but not enough of Jordan. So she is back today. Not only is she a graduate of the Unapologetic Speaker Training Program, she is also one of the authors that I am working with on publishing her book, which is coming out fall of 2021, if all goes to plan, through the self-publishing agency. But when I booked her for this interview, I also had this great realization um, and it really kind of struck me that this is sort of her first ever public interview about this story. Um, So no pressure, Anna, no pressure (laughs) at all. Um, But yeah, the first time that I'm really getting you one-on-one, that we are out and not just you and I talking because we've talked a lot, but it's like out in the world today. So that would normally... I think not be such a grand statement, but for the fact that uh, Jordan has roots in an extremely public story. Uh, she is Jordan Lau, and she is the sister of Corey Lau, uh, who was the intended sole target in the Surrey Six murders. It was a plot to kill a rival drug dealer that went horribly wrong and ended up taking the lives of six men, including, of course, her younger brother, Corey and also her older brother, Michael, along with two of their friends who happened to be in the apartment that day, as well as two other innocent men who found themselves in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I will tell you up front, I'm going to tell all of you listeners up front that this episode today uh, will not be taking us through the events of that day. That day and the moments before and after it uh, have been played out over the course of many years in court. And out of respect for all of the victims and their families, including my very special guest, um, but also because I'm not in the business of inciting or triggering trauma here, we will not be going through those details. This is not going to be a run of a horrific murder or trials that stole brothers and sons and fathers and uncles from human life. So I hate to break it to you, that won't be happening. So if that's what you're here for, you can leave now. There are families who have suffered here and uh, they don't need to hear those details again and again. That's something we're gonna talk about actually today with Jordan. Uh, We're gonna be talking about loss and grief and it is hard enough without third party commentary. So I will not be participating in that regard. And if you want the details, go Google them you know where to find stuff on the internet these days. We are talking about on this podcast, human beings with human emotions and human feelings and human stories. The humans behind 
the stories, those big stories, and that will be our focus today. So we are going to explore some very big topics, including grief and trauma. And of, of course, we are talking about the after effects of murder. So I will warn my listeners that if it feels a little uncomfortable for you, now might be the time to hit pause. Um, but we will be exploring uh, this is the great part about this. We are going to be exploring all the things that come after as well, all those breakthroughs and discoveries and those big moments, how Jordan has really tried to rebuild her life after something so awful. So let's just bring her on. Let's bring on Jordan and get to it. This is Jordan Lau, and she is currently working as a mortgage broker, but I will tell you, she is so much more than that, which you will see in a moment. Jordan, welcome to the show. Uh-huh. Anna, it's so nice to talk to you today. So nice to see you. It's been so long, first of all, since I've seen your face. We talk on the phone often and we've been talking about your book, but here you are. And I will say for the listeners who can't see, she is cozied up in her closet right now, surrounded (laughs) by clothes. (laughs) And she does does look quite cozy. And um, her closet is really clean for a mother of three who's also a full-time working parent. You have a very clean closet with clothes actually hanging up, which is nothing like my closet. So thank you for being here from your closet today. Thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. Now, I'm going to start here. When you entered the speaker training program, I obviously had, I had no idea who you were, how you were connected Mm -hmm. to this huge, great story that was playing out in the media. Um, I was familiar with the story, of course, um, as many of our listeners would be, but that really wasn't how I met you and how I got to know you. We started talking because we were investigating just the journey of grief and loss after Mm -hmm. losing both of your brothers. Right. Yeah. And as you started kind of talking through that story, what became very apparent for me is that uh, you had been hiding. Very much so. Yeah. And only now, as I'm kind of witnessing the last couple of years here, last couple of months almost, Yes. I am I feel like I'm starting to actually see Jordan again. Does that feel true for you? Because this incident happened in what are we talking about now? Like 2007. So yes, it um it's taken me an incredibly long time, but in perspective, it's not been that long. Um, to actually get to a place where I feel comfortable and uh, that it's actually beneficial and part of my healing to share some of my story and the challenges that I've had, the, the constant ups and downs and roller coaster uh, through it all. Yeah. And, and I mean, ups and downs, huge, huge. What I want to ask you really is these ups and downs included obviously court Yes. It included having to be part of these big major media soaked trials and there was eyes watching you at all times, whether it was media or otherwise. Talk to me about court because I don't think a lot of people talk about this topic of actually having to go, whether it's a big trial like this or even just any trial, any yeah. process at all. Talk to me about what that's like for the families. Yeah. So, I mean, I can't, I can't speak for all of the families, um, but for, for myself and for my parents specifically, um, I think we were extremely surprised at 
the court process um, and not just the the legalities of it, but even just the the landscape of of going into a courtroom um, and looking around and and for us um, the courtrooms were always full, packed. Um, there was lineups to get in and faces we'd never seen before and eyes, you know, wondering, ears always listening. Um, it, it felt very intrusive. It felt like it was a show, like mm -hmm. people were there for entertainment. And that was really hard to absorb and really hard to keep to ourselves and not react. Um, and so I, I have to say that I think that through the court process is where I really learned about grace mm -hmm. and holding my head high and realizing that at that time, the mask or the hiding had to go in full force. I, I, I couldn't let anyone see beyond the outside and the outside had to remain strong, head high and um, it was exhausting. Exhausting. It was exhausting. Exhausting. Yes. And what uh, people probably don't know about you as well is that at the time of this horrific incident in your life, you were actually pregnant. You were just yeah. a young, soon-to-be mom. Yeah. You didn't have any children. This was your going to be your firstborn child. So. Yeah, that's a really hard and vulnerable time in a woman's life anyway, but then to yes. face this degree of grief and kind of trying to reestablish family or something. I mean, just, I'm, I'm just butchering this definition of that moment in your life. So no. I'm going to pass you the mic here, but uh, talk to me about that. Yeah. So, you know, I was, um, I was about six months pregnant with my first baby, um, I was terrified. <laughs> I had not planned on uh, being pregnant at that time in my life. I was just 23 years old. And when I found out I was pregnant, um, I, it took a long time to, it took months to, to kind of get, gain acceptance and, and um, of what my life was going to look like. And two of the people who helped me kind of um, make peace or um, the idea of, of becoming a mom and, and raising a, another human uh, were my brothers. Mm. So uh, both of them had quite different reactions when I told them I was pregnant, um, which were true to their personalities. Michael was, uh, my older brother was extremely excited and he hugged me and I remember him just saying like, you're going to be the best mom. And uh, it made me feel like, okay, at least I'm not alone. I have family and I, they've got me. And um, when I told Corey, you know, he was, uh, he was always kind of a jokester and he liked to poke me as much as he could. And um, I remember him just hugging me outside of my bedroom. So at the time uh, we both lived with my mom and uh, he told me, like, you're going to be the best. Like, you've always been the best sister. You're going to be the best mom. Mm -hmm. And so when I lost them, I was scared. I didn't know how to manage 
life without them at that point. And then even more so the idea of becoming a mom, how was it going to take care of anyone if I couldn't have even taken care of the people that meant so much to me and they were gone now. So it was a, it was a very, very difficult um, time for obvious reasons and then some very hidden reasons as well. Of course. Did you feel a sense of responsibility that you, as you said, you couldn't take care of him? Losing them, I, you know, I, I couldn't understand how it even happened. Um, what's, what sign did I miss? What steps didn't, you know, he take? What, why, how, how did this happen? I yeah. felt like it wasn't necessarily my fault, but what didn't I do enough? Mm, what uh, emotion to carry around. And it, particularly as a, as a young mom now, who's already yeah. the burden of, I guess that just that mom guilt. Are you doing enough? Are you supplying enough? Mm-hmm. Are you supporting your baby enough? So you had this new mm-hmm. baby at the time. So how old is your son now? So my son is, is 13 now. 13. He was born. Yeah. He was born um, exactly two months after my brothers had passed. So he was born on December 19th. Wow. 2007. Wow. Yeah. And that was not an easy delivery for you. This will take us on to another tangent into a motherhood topic. Yes. I know that that was <laughs> furious and you were in the throes of grief and trauma at the time. So to, yeah, yeah to even be going through those early days uh, with a newborn, my goodness. And then to have such a, I think he was premature, wasn't he? He was, so he was five weeks premature mm-hmm. and, um, when my water broke and, uh, on December 18th, um, I was supposed to deliver at Peace Arch Hospital in White Rock and, um, in BC here. And when I called the hospital, they said, well, we don't deliver premature babies here. I said, okay, well, where do I go? What do I do? <laughs> and they said, well, come in and we'll check you out and we'll see what happens. And so we got to the hospital and, um, for those of you that were in BC and that in 2007, you'll remember there was a ton of snow that year. So the drive was quite eventful. Um, and I got to the hospital and, um, the, I remember the nurse coming in and, and, and hooking up the IV and I said, Whoa, what, what are you doing? Like, I, I'm not having the baby today. And she said, yeah, you are, you know, there's a risk because your, your water has broken and, and all these other things. And my only thought was I'm not having this baby on the 19th. And I looked at Jason and I said, I'm not having this baby on the 19th. I'm not, my brothers died on the 19th. I'm not having him on the 19th. And it was incredibly um, emotional and they couldn't deliver the baby at uh, the hospital that we were at. So they said, okay, let's pop you into an ambulance by yourself and strap you down and we'll take you to another, uh, ended up going to Royal Columbian. And I remember that drive so specifically um, sitting with a nurse or paramedic I'm not even sure who it was in the ambulance by myself and telling her what had happened and it was probably the first time that I had ever talked about it out loud in two months wow. and I cried and I cried and I cried and 
I remember laying in the gurney and, and looking out the, you know, the windows of the ambulance and seeing the lights go by and just thinking like, is this going to end? Like once I have him, is this, am I going to wake up? Is this all going to be over? Mm. And, um, it wasn't, but he was, uh, he was early, but he was born, I think as a gift to me on that date. Um, and a little thing, a really, really cool thing that happened is after he was born and I went to visit him in the NICU, um, the time that he was born was 1919. Wow. So I really believe that my son was given to me on the 19th of December at 1919 to help cope with that loss mm. two months earlier on the 19th. Just to even rewrite that number for you, just to hear how much fear you had, like don't come on the 19th because there's so much fear around that is actually quite a, like a, a really profound understanding of how we cope or how we try to make sense of the things that happen in our world that are so beyond our comprehension where our, mm -hmm. literally our emotional pain threshold is like, it's too much. It's too much. Yeah. Um, I would like, if you feel comfortable talking to me about this and I, I hope you do, I know you and I talk about it all the time, but <laughs> um, I want to talk about therapy which is yeah. such a fun topic because oh, yeah. <laughs> such a fun topic, isn't it? Like a, we could do a whole episode on just therapy alone. Um, but when you were in the speaker training program, uh, part of your story that you shared was that there was this really, really uh, big moment, a big revelation for you where you were mm -hmm. sitting on the stairs in your home yeah. and your young son saw you crying, which was not unusual for you at the time. It was just no. crying on probably tears on tears, but talk to me, I think first about that actual moment. And then we're going to go back a, a little bit and talk about, um, I think trauma and grief and depression and all of those things yeah. as well. But what was that moment when your son saw you crying on the stairs and how old was he? So my son would have been um, about three years old at that time just over three and I remember it specifically because it was a extremely challenging time and a pivotal moment in my life where I often found myself crying to myself um, quietly um, in between laundry and and just caring for for a toddler and working full-time and um, just trying to get back to to normal and I, I'm using air quotes but normal life and um, I sat there and I was pregnant with my second baby actually at that time wow. and so uh, I think a lot of times I I kind of tried to almost rationalize like is this pregnancy hormones or am I feeling sad today is it am I grieving or am I just exhausted? And so not really even being able to fully understand what the root cause was, I just sobbed and sobbed. And I remember just out of the corner of my eye, seeing my son leave his bedroom and, and walk over to me. And I had my head pressed up against the wall. And I, I think I 
almost tried to like shield the tears so he didn't see and and his little tiny voice and he said I'm sorry I make you mad mama and in that moment I just realized oh my god like my three-year-old thinks he's making me sad Mm. and how can I explain to this three-year-old that he's the only wonderful beautiful thing that I have that keeps me going and I realized that um, I was not handling life and the emotions and the grief that I had been given and I had to I had to make a change I had to yeah and that was the moment I think quite a pivotal moment for you where you actually did go and seek help I did. Yes. So the, the next uh, day I visited um, my family doctor and within minutes of, uh, she was a new family doctor. So I should probably preface that because she didn't know me very long. Um, And I hadn't fully shared everything with her. Um, And I did, I went in that day and I shared and she, within, you know, the first five minutes, she said, we need to get you some help. Mm-hmm. and uh, made a referral to um, fetal mental health, maternal health, fetal maternal mental health, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I anxiously awaited to see a, a psychiatrist. And um, it, it took a little while. It took a, a couple months, but it was, uh, you know, I did the best that I could during that time. And my first meeting with the doctor at maternal fetal health was um it was very difficult mm-hmm. uh, the almost the immediate um remedy that, that that she'd offered was um I needed to be on some type of antidepressant I needed to do something to fix the chemical imbalance in my brain mm-hmm. in order to engage in in some other types of therapy but it was that was the medication was was top and I was pregnant and so my immediate response was like I can't even take a Tylenol right (laughs) no (laughs) I'm not (laughs) I've been dying from a sinus infection you want me to take what (laughs) um (laughs) so I really um that was very very difficult for me to wrap my head around I had I knew that I needed help, but I, I didn't want that kind of help. Yeah. It was so hard. And I don't accept, right? Yeah. It's almost like, you know, when you get to a point where you know that you, that you need help and then you get the courage to ask for help, but you don't really know what kind of help Mm -hmm. you need. And then someone suggests something or your doctor suggests something and it doesn't sit right with you, but you feel like you have no option. This is, you have no power. Oh, I, I, love that you're, I, I really love that we're talking about this because, um, I mean, I, you and I both have been on probably medication over the years for various things, but yeah. um, it doesn't necessarily mean, even though it is a bridge um, to various other therapies that are necessary and, and it is a, a medical tool that I do advocate for myself. Um, I think what you're talking to is this bigger picture too of just like all the different ways that your health is being affected. This is not just one conversation about grief. This is not just one moment that says, how do I navigate grief? Because life after grief 
has to continue. As you say, you have to keep putting one foot in front of the other. You have children to feed. You have a job that still expects you to show up every day. You have family that relies on you for emotional support. You have in your case, which is maybe not everybody's grief scenario, but you have court to attend. And what I hear in a way, and I know my own experience with trauma, there is this sort of avoidance that kicks in a lot of times where we just kind of avoid thinking about it because that is safer and it feels better to us, whether, I mean, there's, I'm sure arguments on both sides of that of whether or not that's healthy, but yes. (laughs) um, what I hear and what I find so fascinating is that for three years, you couldn't give yourself permission no. to grieve. There was no permission yeah. there. It's almost like you felt it, you couldn't, you weren't allowed. Exactly. And even at that three-year mark, when I know that I needed, that I needed help, I still felt quite powerless because at that time, um, some arrests had been made um, in 2009. So about a year prior to, to that kind of breakthrough. And, but court the court process didn't start until 2013. Mm. So three years after, you know, this traumatic event had happened, I, you know, opened myself up to say, okay, I need some help. I didn't know what kind of help. And then the help that was offered felt like it was the only option, Mm. which was incredibly difficult to comprehend. And then it wasn't just like, I had this expectation, like I'd go in, they'd give me a list of things I needed to do. And then I tick them off and then I'd feel better. Everything would be better. Or if you were going to prescribe me this medication, you were going to give me this medication and I would be better. Mm. Um, neither of those things happened. Right. <laughs> so it was, it, uh, and, and, you know, <clears throat> even years later now, <clears throat> excuse me, I realized that, um, yeah, it's never really, there's no, there's no list. There's no deadline. There's no magical race that you end up winning. Um, it's lifelong. Yeah. It's life. It's lifelong. Um, and it's been, it's been a very long time for you. And as we mentioned at the top, we're kind of starting really only now to see you yeah. a little bit yeah. and to really see who is Jordan? What was her experience with this? Um, it feels to me like you may have finally given yourself permission to yeah. say, wow, I've been through a lot. Yeah. And, you know, truthfully, um, I'm so grateful for you. I mean, I'm your number one fan. Um, but taking your course uh, with an apologetic um, speaker training really, really was a- another pivotal moment in in my life, um, reading out the, my first draft, my first draft of my story and, and, and what I wanted it to say, I remember feeling so anxious about even getting it on paper. And then I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and it was like pages and pages. I think I like wait, went way over my time. Um, <laughs> but, and I wasn't even done. And I just, and I broke down and I cried and I was so, I thought, gosh, I can't even do this. Like I can't even grieve properly. Like what is wrong with me after all this time? Shouldn't I know what, you know, shouldn't I be over this? Shouldn't I have dealt with this? And I felt so lost. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know. I felt like their deaths, my brother's deaths had defined everything about 
who I was and nothing else mattered. And I remember reading the first draft to you and you looking at me and saying, what I hear is this beautiful story about love and resilience and creating this trio of love with your children with the power of love that you had within your own siblings and in that moment it literally transformed the entire story in my mind and I think I even said to you at that time like well I like your version of the story better because <laughs> I really did and and I and I, I stuck with that and I thought yes I this is my story like I have made it through all of these days and it's been a, a work in progress to continue to kind of unveil or unmask um, the story that I've, that I've been carrying and hiding for, for quite some time. Mm -hmm. And still, even then it's, it's still taken time, more time um, to continue to uncover some of those parts and um sitting here today is probably the most comfortable I have ever felt in the 13 years since I've had to deal with this big traumatic event and loss. And I hope that it continues to feel more comfortable with who I am and me sharing, if that makes sense. Absolutely does. And I can say, I think even sitting with you today and talking to you, I feel like I'm, I am looking at a different version of you. Mm -hmm. like a new, you know, I know we always recreate ourselves and yeah. everyone does this, but I do, when I think about um, when I first met you and when I am talking to you now, I'm like, this just, there's like a, there's an uncovering, there's this revealing yeah. that's happening. And I keep wanting to use the term permission. I don't know why it just keeps coming up as I'm thinking yeah. about it. It's like, here's this, she finally just got to take a big deep breath and say, yeah, you know, it's it's a hard story. It's a hard story. Yeah. And even as you described at the uh, top end of this interview, your courtroom was filled with eyes you didn't know. Yeah. Your, the media was following you. And mm -hmm. it's hard not to feel. And I know that part of the story is that here, if your brother was the target, then he is somehow to blame. Yes. For all of this. And yes. that is... Uh, very, I mean, I think it's a very common thought and yeah. I don't want to really, and I, I'm careful with this because I think there are things that human beings do wrong in their life. Yes. People do things and they make choices that are not okay. Yeah. They also, Absolutely. Have, they also have families. Yes. Yes. And they have people that are moving around them, having to navigate those decisions as well. And, and, yes. you know, even your own children. Well, and that's, you know, and that, and that's it, you know, um, of course I'm incredibly protective of, of my family and of my brothers and, and always have been, and I'm probably more so since they've been gone because of, um, the way that the media per, has projected them, the, the facts that, that they were, that not they, but my brother Corey was involved in that lifestyle. And he mm -hmm. 
isn't in it. He wasn't innocent in terms of his involvement. But, and I say, but with a bit of hesitation, because I know that there's so, there's so many opinions of the matter. And the only thing that I have been able to kind of tell myself and remind myself of is that sometimes you make bad decisions and I would challenge anyone to think about their own life and question whether they had made a bad decision when they were in their late teens, early twenties. Did you learn anything? Did you do something that you probably wouldn't have done looking back 10 years later? Would you have, you know, involved yourself with the same group of people? You know, hindsight is uh, always 2020. Uh, which is interesting based on last year, 2020, but, um, (laughs) you know, I I really, I I really think about that often because um, my brothers were so young, you know, um, Corey had just turned 21 and he made bad decisions and those decisions resulted in a life time worth of grief and loss and sadness and really really hard times for the people that he loved the most and so if there was a way for him to have made right on his wrong decisions or a way to go back and and not lose those things do I hesitate for a moment to think that he would do that no of course not Mm -hmm. he just didn't get the chance Mm -hmm. and bad decisions don't necessarily make bad people and I can tell you that neither one of my brothers were bad people um to me and that's yeah that's all I think about Mm -hmm. and remind myself of and those are the stories that I share with my children that we talk about that we remember that's all you can do yeah yeah and I think part of I know you and I have talked about this but part of the reason that you haven't given yourself permission to grieve is because you have held a sense of responsibility for not just your family and your children but so many families yeah uh you know and that's a it's a really difficult um conversation and a difficult topic um because I, I never want to try to say that I understand how any other family is, is dealing or coping with this. Um, I can only speak to, to what I feel and to possibly what my parents feel to a certain extent. Um, I didn't lose a son. They did. So even my feelings, um, towards this, uh, this whole scenario and, and my thoughts and, all of those are are all different. They're all personal, but for the other families that were involved, um, I have felt for since the moment that this happened, a sense of responsibility. And I just have wanted to say on so many occasions, like, I am so sorry. Mm -hmm. I am so sorry that you, 
that your son was there. I'm so sorry that your dad was there. I'm so sorry that this happened. And I know that it's not my responsibility to apologize for something that I didn't do. But I really believe deep within my heart that my brothers, if they could say, they would say sorry. They would say, I am so, so sorry. Mm -hmm. And um, that's hard because it's not always received um well it's there's a there's a some people really need someone to blame to cope yeah and I've also you know I I said to my mom um at the beginning of when all the arrests were first made and it was very apparent which um which where families kind of stood at that time. And I said, whatever they need to do, whoever they need to blame, whatever they need to say, however they need to act in order to cope with their loss, that's okay. Mm-hmm. And if it comes at my expense, I'll take it because I am so sorry. Mm-hmm. And that became really heavy. And it still is very heavy because I still feel like if someone needs to blame my family my brothers to make themselves feel better and make it through their day then who am I to judge them oh that's huge and a huge lesson I think for all of us because who are we really to judge anybody it's easy as you say sometimes we need somebody to blame and that's part of uh, a grief journey and yeah. your grief journey in a lot of ways was to blame yourself. You kind yeah. of chose that too, right? I mean, you just said, yeah. this is, I'm just going to sit with this for so many years, uh, whether or not it's fair or whether I feel it's fair, it's just something that's resting on my heart and on my soul. And yet here you are, here you are. And one of the other thing, one of the other effects of this um, was your work. And I know we touched on this before, but during the trial process, during the court process, uh, you were actually dropping your children, your young children at various Mm. daycares. I think it wasn't even just one stop. (laughs) It was like you were taxiing them to all the different things as many moms can relate to. You drop your children off in the morning. Mm-hmm. go to court and you'd come back and pick your children up and just start making dinner as if it was just yeah. completely normal to wander into court and either listen to or talk to or be a you were a witness at one point even or not a witness yeah. I guess a is that what they call it yeah. yeah they would call it yeah a witness which was a really difficult term to digest because I thought I'm not a witness I wasn't there yeah. um, that that was uh, probably one of the scariest moments of my life most anxious moments more I was more anxious then and more overwhelmed than when I had all of my children (laughs) walking uh when court first started um because I was identified as a witness I was not allowed to attend court for the first few days so I didn't get to um, enter the court courtroom with my parents um, and hear the opening remarks, um, the first few um, witnesses who testified, which were um, the property managers who um, first entered the scene, um, along with some other people. I was, I was not able to be in attendance. And so when I did 
have to enter. And the first time I entered the courtroom had to go into the witness stand and then face three people that were involved with killing my brothers Um, in the face. It was, um, it was, uh, I'm not sure I can even find the words. No. And and I think, um, yeah. And I won't make you because I think you described that so beautifully anyway. And I can feel the emotions of that moment, even just yeah. as, I, as I watch you describe them and try and find the words. It's so it's true. It's like, there are what words you even put to that. And here you were obviously raising your family, but yes, you're also having this um, shift in your health at the time. And we're yeah. moving through this process of dealing with tremendous trauma, tremendous grief, you're seeking out help and therapy. And yet your therapy appointments were interfering with your job, which you had to continue to go to and show up and be there at the time you worked in a bank. So you have to be there to talk to clients and say, Mm -hmm. okay, tell me about what's happening in your world and kind of try to help them and guide them (laughs) through a lot of their big major financial decisions and probably their own like life traumas at many levels. And, um, yeah, that's, that's a lot. And then trying to fit in your therapy in, as you and I talked about before, it's like, you go to these therapy appointments and then you're expected to just like, after that hour, walk back to work after you've just like unraveled all of your trauma in front of a healthcare professional. And then you have to go back to work again. And this, in any case, I'm rambling here, but this was not working for you. No. So, you know, truthfully, um, I had told my employer at the time, which I have to say, you know, uh, they were incredibly supportive um, of, of what had happened and, and my involvement. And um, I told them, you know, court is starting in um, October of 2013. Um, I have been named as a witness. And so they've told me I'll testify in the first week. Um, so I'm going to need probably about like two weeks off, two weeks and I'll be good and they said okay cool two weeks and um I never went back to work full-time after that because I was on a medical leave um it 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 broke me Mm. two weeks was you know um a complete miss in terms of I thought I, I, I dealt with this I, w- I was coping I had three children I was doing well in my job and um, you know therapy was was fine it was you know I, I could try and make it work and it was challenging but it, it just it was it, I had to do what I had to do and then after court was done and sentencing happened I found myself in a very dark and lonely space and I could not at that point the therapy was so heavy and so debilitating on days where I would have to go even though it was an hour out of my day it would wreck me Mm -hmm. for days after and with three children under the age of five I just did not have the capacity to go to work Mm. every day. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't know what to do. I felt very alone and I felt like I was 
lost. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what was going to work for me. And so I decided that I needed to figure out like, what, what is it that really lights me up? That makes me feel like really good. And what is it that I, that I love doing? And, and truthfully, I kept going, well, I like working at the bank. <laughs> I liked, you know, I liked sitting across from people, learning their stories. I liked connecting. I liked being able to provide options and, and be able to service and provide them this customer service that they couldn't get anywhere else. And then I realized like, okay, what can I do that will allow me the flexibility to continue my healing journey and to have, you know, if I'm having an off day, have an off day. Yeah. And what can also on the other side of it, fulfill all of these, these things that, that make me feel really great. And that's when I realized, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to become a mortgage broker and it's going to force me into the world. I will have no choice whatsoever <laughs> than to put myself out there. Yeah. And to, you know, deal and, and confront my, I'm an excellent avoider. <laughs> so we've talked about avoidance. I'm really so good I'm at like, that too. <laughs> yes. Like I, I, I'm probably a master avoider. Um, so I needed something that was going to contradict that and say like, you can't hide because if you want to make money and support your family, then you need to get out and you need to there expose are deadlines. There are deadlines with mortgages. Yes. <laughs> yes. And so, you know, it's funny because I, the, my first step was um, I had changed my name on all social media to just my initials throughout since my brother's passed. Mm. And my first step was changing my name on my Facebook account, just to my first and last name. And I did that. And one of my best friends called me and she goes, Hey, I think someone's on your Facebook. And I said, what do you mean? And she's like, somebody just changed your name. It's like your actual full name. And I said, no, no, I changed it. And she said, are you okay? And, I, and so I explained to her why, and it just went to, like, it just was a perfect example of how, hidden I had created and how much of a fortress I had created around myself to protect you know my family myself and part of it fear part of it just making it through making what's the word I'm looking for survival survival yes survival yes Mm -hmm. and so that was the first step and so um moving into this different career uh, has also had its challenges, right? Um, anyone that's self-employed that's listening can understand that. Um, and I've had to, you know, really learn a lot about myself and a lot about some of the, the, the down parts about uh, grief and loss and, and sadness. And unfortunately with my story and my brothers and, it's quite a a large story in media still um just this past summer um it rocked me all over again um july was uh i would define it as like a life-changing event for for myself and for my family and um truthfully it's taken me a very long 
time since then. And I mean, it's been about six months that it's been six months of like hardcore, holy shit, need to like try and recover again. But this time I wasn't trying to recover and heal on my own. I shared a lot of that, which I've never done before. And I used my, my work platform as a conduit for sharing some of that but then also tying it into the work that I do. And it's just melded so perfectly in the sense that like, this is who I am. Yeah. This is me. Yeah. And um, I'm so, I'm really grateful that I took the leap that I did um, with my career and, and changing it over. And it's been challenging. It's still challenging. Mortgage financing is not all glamorous as it sounds (laughs) actually it doesn't sound glamorous (laughs) it's like because when you go through a mortgage application you have to open the closet like you're sitting in right now and feel so much about yourself but what is so interesting to me is just oh it's like as you're talking I'm getting this sense of just like the freedom of being Mm -hmm. able to even own your name which you carried so much shame around and so much secrecy around and of course there's there's the whole other topic of just trauma and trauma avoidance which is part of the trauma experience so it's something that I resonate with I completely understand when you say I'm a master avoider I'm like well yeah no kidding no kidding we love each other so much Yeah. And, and I think that we could do an entire episode just on avoidance and what that yeah. means, even medically speaking, and what happens in mm-hmm. our brains and in our minds when we experience trauma and we don't want to re-experience it and we don't want to be re-triggered by it. But also then there's this other, oh, this freedom, I suppose, in saying, I'm not going to live in shame anymore. I'm not going to live yeah. in um, in that place of, of not giving myself permission just to be me. And here I am, yeah. I have children to raise. I'm still here. I have to do something with this life and I may as well make it productive and be giving and yeah. be of service and try to help other people. You know, I'm going to be cliche and metaphorical here, but open their own new doors Yes, that you did. Right. And, and I'm, I'm going to give people that key. I'm going to at least try and help them with that key. Mm-hmm. That, that shift for you into service, um, I think feels like the most freeing to who you are as you're talking. You're, yes, you're so right. And, you know, truthfully, one of the, the, the biggest challenges that I had um, deciding whether or not I was going to actually, you know, jump out on my own and, and become Jordan Lau mortgage broker or stay hidden as Jordan, you know, account manager at a bank, um, was the acceptance of, of using my name, of owning my name. Mm. And I even explored the possibility of maybe I'll change my name. Maybe I'll use a different name. Um, maybe I'll only use my first name. Um, I had some feedback from friends, from family, um, saying, you know, maybe you shouldn't use your name. Hmm. Maybe you should change it to Jason's last name. Maybe okay, so your partner, obviously the father. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, Not just any like, random Jason on the street. Just yeah. random Jason. <laughs> Who has a Jason partner out there? Um, <laughs> um, and a lot of people 
people, you know, um, throughout my, my journey being a mortgage broker, I shouldn't say a lot, but there have been some people who have said to me, who have learned parts of my story and have said, don't tell anyone that. Mm-hmm. Do not, shame. yeah, do not share that your family was, had any involvement in anything. They won't, people won't trust you. Um, people will Google you and they'll find out things. And, you know, we don't want referral partners to know that. Um, and it, I took it to heart um, for a good portion. And I would never share about things that were happening um, which were tough because it it affected me obviously in a personal capacity, but also business because throughout the years, it wasn't like it was a, so with our particular story, it's not just start, finish, okay, done. It's continual. So um, throughout the last 13 years, there have been months where there's, there's nothing, just living, just life, dealing, coping, moving to the next thing, raising babies, doing all these things. Yes. Survival. And then all of a sudden a big explosion of something, or sometimes it's just an email that triggers this whole spiral and I would shut down Mm. and I would go dark. I would miss opportunities. I damaged business relationships because I just closed off I didn't want to tell anybody what I was dealing with or what I was going through because then they might not want to do business with me anymore. They might not trust me. They might, you know, uh, they might think that I'm, if I'm battling a bout of depression, then I'm not professional. If I am, you know, grieving, I'm too sad to take on any work. And I just shut down. Um, and then I would emerge and basically have to start from, from fresh. So um, over this last year, I've really just tried to be as honest as I can with my clients, with the people that are following me, with my partners and, and telling them like, I'm having a hard time right now. So I just need you to understand that I will get it done. And, and that's that. Whereas Five years ago, I could have never said that. And so honest though, but that is, I mean, that's real courage, especially in the financial world, which Mm -hmm. um, I obviously have experience in, but just knowing like, that's not, that's unusual for your mortgage Mm -hmm. broker to say, look, I'm a human being with a human story with human feelings and emotions. And Mm -hmm. I love what I love so much about your story, Jordan, um, is just, first of all, how honest and raw you always are, which is just such a gift mm-hmm. to me and now obviously the, the listeners for this podcast, but it is the way in which, and I think this came through actually in your victim impact statement that you read recently back mm-hmm. in, I guess, July that you were referring to. And it was this concept or this notion of like, we do, people make mistakes, people are human. Uh, there are human things that happen. There are things that happen before you make your mistake that lead up to your mistake that start to uh, create the story of who you believe you are and why you should be doing the things you're doing or not do the things you don't want to do. I mean, all of the questions of Mm -hmm. navigating human life. And part of what your statement was, was like, at the end of the day, no one gets to play God. Yeah. No one gets to play God and no one gets to play 
uh, judge over other people's lives. Right. It's easy to do that. That is the, that's the natural step. And we honor the grief process for everybody. And we've all been there. We've all been there. We go through our days kind of trying to, I guess, figure out what do we think about this? What do we not think about this? But the harder job, the harder thing to do is really to lean into just compassion. And I think yeah. into compassion for mo- most, especially when I hear your story uh, for oneself to look at yeah. your own journey with your own story, your own shame, whatever happens with your family or doesn't happen. And whether you had control over it or had no control, or it doesn't mm-hmm. matter what or where, but to actually say, um, I'm allowed to be human. Yeah. 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 And especially I'm allowed to show up in my job and my life as human um, and for hopefully for the gift that you are giving to your three children of being able to yes. rebuild in some sense mm-hmm. what love is and to create new lessons for them, lessons that they may not have had otherwise about the paths they want mm. to take in their life and consequences of paths. And I mean, there's all kinds. Exactly. Of yeah. There's, and you know, and I, I think that all else aside, you know, you don't get to choose sometimes thing, the things that happen to you. Of course. But you always, always, the only thing that you have is control over how you react. And I'm no master at that. <laughs> but what I can, can get say away sometimes you'll react out of trauma instead yes. of choice. Yeah. But what I can say is that that is the most important life lesson that I can teach my children from the life experiences that I have had mm-hmm. in that sometimes things are going to happen that are going to hurt you. Um, things you're going to lose people. It's a fact of life. And there are going to be ups and downs and parts of you that you will, that you will judge or that might register shame and just know that that's all of us Mm. and that you, the only thing that you can do, the only thing that they can do is have control over their reactions and how they allow that to meld their different experiences in life. Mm. And most importantly to, you know, if I can teach my children one thing throughout their lives is that empathy vulnerability and resilience are all the most amazing traits that they could have. Mm. And they are the things, the components of life that will allow them to have the most love Mm. if they can really understand those things. Wow. Yeah. Um, I truly I was going to ask you another question, but honestly, I actually love how that just wrapped. I love, <laughs> I love that you left us with that. I think it's so beautiful. Uh, Jordan, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, thank you for yeah, talking yeah. to me again. I love you. And I love these conversations. Um, I'm really excited for the world to see your book, which I will have you back on when we do that launch, which is uh, several months down the road. I think yes. we're still trudging through some writing, but um, yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for being, and thank, thank you for you. being honest about what is a very difficult and controversial topic and mm-hmm. story and all of, you know, again, if you're listening out there, if you want to Google it, Google it, but I encourage you actually not to, <laughs> I encourage you to imagine, um, that human beings are human and that there are stories behind all of the stories. So everything that you see in the media, let's use a critical eye. Let's be an, uh, more analytical about what we're taking in mm-hmm. so that we can form meaningful opinions and, and no judgment on any opinion. Just let's form the ones that feel good and feel That's compassionate. Right. So thank you. My thank dear. you. We will talk soon. Okay. Bye. Wow, that was such a big topic, such a brilliant conversation and nourishing actually in so many ways. Uh, I just feel so moved by Jordan's bravery to not only show up and really talk about this very, very difficult story, but to face a lot of the shame and stigma that has been clouding her and her family Uh, that's hard. This is hard. And I usually end the show with some wisdom of my own in this how-to, but we covered so much ground here. Uh, I'm also cautious, I think, to teach anybody or to offer any advice on how to navigate life after uh, the murder of a family member. It's not something I've personally experienced, and I don't think that I could speak to it in any way that would help shape your perspective around that. So I want to just leave you with this. Um, I want to leave you with my weekly uh, Secrets Are Out segment. Uh, and this is where I answer audience questions. And the one that felt felt for me most true to this topic is, how did you find your calling? And I know that seems very strange uh, considering what we're talking about today. But how did I find my calling? The reason this feels relevant to me is that we just heard Jordan talk about taking this very, very painful moment in her life and uh, turning to service, turning outward into trying to help others with through the practices of her uh, mortgage creation and getting people into their new homes and unlocking doors for people. That was her calling into finding some purpose to put one foot in front of the other to just make her way through this life with such an enormous challenge emotionally over her. And so I'm going to answer the question for me, what was my calling? When, when did I have that calling into what I'm doing now? And it really came along in much the same fashion. It came out of a moment of great pain, of noticing that I was hiding and I wasn't sharing much of my life. I wasn't sharing much of my personal story because I was so ashamed that I was anything other than that A-type kind of corporate professional that most of my circle and community and family knew prior to um, all of my diagnoses, which I talked about uh, a couple weeks ago. And my calling truly was, as Jordan's was, it was into service. It was how do I, now that I've had this awakening and I know how powerful connection and community can become through storytelling, how do I take that and make it mean something in somebody else's life? And I think that's what I want to put forward to you today, which is that if you feel that your life is getting in your way, your life story is getting in your way, of actually living. Perhaps it's about 
figuring out how we can be in service to others using the power of that story. Maybe that's a first step. How do I actually transform? One of the things that I said all along when I started my business was that our souls are really based on three essential energies and that's love, creativity, and wisdom. Wisdom to share what we've learned, creativity to develop novel ideas, to reframe, to rewrite what those stories mean, and love, always love, always service, always thinking about ways that we can better connect to somebody. And I hope, I hope that means something to you today. Thank you again for tuning in to this edit. Thank you for joining this edit of the Unapologetic Stories podcast. If you're ready to share your truth and rewrite your personal life story, connect with me at unapologeticstories.com for all the details on speaker training, storytelling, and strategizing your way through this one big life. If you've enjoyed listening, we would love for you to leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast listening app or Apple Podcast. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Unapologetic Anna for new speaker training start dates. Until next time, stay brave, stay unapologetic, and keep bringing in your truth.